Are you an investigative professional? Have you heard about the investigatorstoolbox.com? Check out this exclusive online community for networking, learning, and data resource management. The Toolbox is a one-stop shop for all your investigative needs. Check out our robust collection of forums, our comprehensive learning page, and our expansive library of OSINT research tools. We've just released an app for both iOS and Android, so you can access the site seamlessly right off your phone. We have also partnered with some amazing companies like Crosstracks, Delpoint, IRB, ScopeNow, the Hetherington Group, PI Magazine, PI Gear, Merlin Locate Services, Paravin, the PI Institute of Education, and so many more. They're offering over $1,250 worth of discounts and benefits exclusively to community members today. Use code PIP201836 and save 10% on your membership. That's www.investigators-toolbox.com. Crosstracks case management system. That is what we are talking about today. Are you using a case management system? What are you waiting for? If you don't use a case management system, you really need to look into implementing that into your business regimen. I've been at it with Crosstracks now a little over a year, and it's just been a game changer for my business. They are SOC 2 certified, SOC 2 Type 2 certified. If you don't know what that means, it means that they're encryption system is second to none and you have to go through a whole screening process to figure out uh, if you can even qualify for that and they have so you know with certainty your data is being protected i don't think there's another case management system out there that offers that same ability to have the SOC 2 type 2 certification as you guys know i've been uh, you know singing the praises of cross tracks and uh, i really believe in this product and i believe you should check it out Contact Brad, contact Pat, uh, one of the team members over there, and see if it's right for you. Crosstracks case management system, check it out today. We're back this week with another great episode. Today we speak with Kitty Haley. Most of the time when you hear Kitty speak, it's about ethics. She literally wrote the book on ethics, actually a few books. However, today we're going to talk about post-conviction investigations. It's a new topic for Matt, and we think you'll find it incredibly interesting. So please welcome our special guest, Kitty Haley, and your host, private investigator, Matt Spare. And welcome everybody to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. Well, today is a special treat for me. It's a real honor. And uh, I've known this person for a couple of years, probably more than I care to admit, because I've been in the business for a bit. But today we are not talking about ethics with Kitty Haley. I'm I'm really surprised. Kitty, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. And thank you for not talking about ethics. Yeah. It's really nice to change of pace. Been there and done that. I've known you through New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania through Nally, and uh, I've sat in a bunch of your presentations, both uh, virtually and, and live. I want to say the first time I probably heard you talk was in Michigan. There was a joint NCISS uh, event out in Michigan, and you were chatting out there. And uh, of course, you were talking about ethics. So we were talking offline and said, okay, what else can we talk about? Today, we're going to talk about post-conviction investigations, which is fascinating to me. Uh, but before we dive into all that, if there's anyone uh, on this huge earth that doesn't know who you are, <laughs> please give me a little bit of your background. Well, I've been an investigator for ever. And I started a long, long time ago doing full service investigation. My background is that I started working with my husband, who is no longer my husband. Over the years, we did everything. We did surveillance and we did locating missing children and domestic work and, you know, you name it. If it walked in the door, 
I said, yeah, we can do that because that's how you make money. And we put our children through college and we raised a family. And now I can concentrate on the things I'd rather do. I was never going to do criminal work when my children were young because I didn't want to put them in jeopardy. Right. They're not young. I'm old and I like doing it. It's great. Yeah. You know, as soon as uh, we were talking offline beforehand and, and, uh, you know, you told me the number of grandchildren you have. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm floored. <laughs> Too many. Yes. Too many. many, many. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. It's yeah. wonderful. You know, there's, there's something about the, uh, growing up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, if 60 is the new 40, then all these millennials are 12 years old. So yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy to be me. Yeah. I like being the age that I am. Yep. And I like the work that I do. And I love the fact that it's balanced by my being able to be grandma. Yeah. There's nothing better. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen a thing or two in the industry, right? The changes from when you started to what, what's going on now, the whole, uh, you know, shift towards technology. I actually just wrote about this for PI magazine for the next uh, issue that's coming out in September. Um, it, the the real shift, right? That we can we can have a smaller business. We can do things because of technology and all these uh, advantages. So, what are some of the changes that you've seen over the years that you think are like, wow, this really helped me elevate my business to the next level? Well, look, obviously, being able to access data and do a background on someone before you have to go and see them in person makes all the difference in the world. Knowing who your client is, being able to quickly do a search and find out if they're for real and that you're dealing with an honest human being and not someone who's trying to scam you. And then being able to find information on the people you're looking for. It makes it so much easier. But, you know, here's the truth. If you took all of that away, I'm still going to be a good investigator because I have a mouth and two feet and I can walk to where I need to go and I can hold a conversation. And there's nothing better than personal one-on-one. That's how I do my work. Sure. Sure. I think what it comes down to is that, right? You have to have those people skills uh, and methodology is really, really important, right? So um, tools are always going to change, right? There's always going to be something that's like the hot thing, the thing that works until it doesn't. Let's look at Facebook and the graph uh, searches and all that. But if you have the methodology behind that, if you have the backbone of how to do research and it's like, okay, I'll just swap this tool for that tool, you're still ahead of the game, right? So as investigators, we need to stay on top of that stuff. We need to learn how to do it, not how to use this to do it, right? Big difference. Yeah, but there's also something else there too. There's all that data out there, but most people don't know how to use the data. Mm -hmm. So um, I've worked with attorneys who've said, I can't locate this person, can you help me? And the first thing I say is, please send me what you've done already. Right. And then I don't have to do any more searching because they've already done it. I mean, if they use LexisNexis, which is what most attorneys use, Correct. it's the basis for almost everything we get. Right. However, it's the way it's set up and it's knowing how to read it, knowing how to look at it and seeing the other things like the names of neighbors or relatives or former addresses that might actually be a current address. I mean, there's all kinds of things there you need to look at. You don't just get a piece of paper and look at the heading and say, oh, I got the address because that's not necessarily true. Right. You know, you check it out. Do they still own it? Are they still paying for the utilities? There's so many things you can do. Right. And if we were talking about ethics today, we would talk about not like cutting and pasting all that information too. But uh, we're we're not going there. Everybody, 
I'm, I'm the ethics guru, not by choice. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to write a book on ethics in 2005 yeah. because we were living in the Wild West. Yeah. And investigators were doing stupid things and they were making me look bad. Sure. And seriously, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Because if we were going to do things and this was going to be my profession for life, then I wanted to do it right. And I wanted to do it my way, mm. which was according to the book, I wanted to give things to attorneys that they could present in court. Mm. I didn't want to give them something that was going to make them look bad or come back and bite me in the butt. Sure. So sure. I did that. Now yeah. I became very well known for that. But I did that in my spare time. I wrote that book while I was still locating missing persons, getting people off of death row, yeah. doing civil rights work, which is my passion. It's I mean, amazing. I do more criminal work than I've ever done in my life. And I'm busier at my age than I was 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure like solving those cases or getting someone exonerated, like that puts fire in your belly, right? That makes you say like, oh yeah, this is why I do what I do. Um, I, I can only imagine what that feels like, right? Well, it's it's kind of amazing to give somebody back their life. It's an amazing feeling. And the horror is that they had their life taken away from them in the first place right. because somebody did something wrong, either intentionally or unintentionally, or because there was not a good investigator on the case to begin with. And so the value of investigation becomes heightened every time I do a job. Yeah. And I realize how important it is that new people understand that what they do changes lives. Yeah. You know, we're not just television, all that nonsense. Everybody wants to be a TV actress or actor and, uh, Actors are not investigators. Sure. They don't do the job. We work hard. And at the end of the day, we don't go out and party in silk dresses with uh, martinis at um, somebody's palatial mansion, unless you know you know how to do that, please tell me. <laughs> unless you're but, doing uh, undercover work. You know, yes. We usually <laughs> go home and go to bed because we're exhausted. Yeah. We worked really hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Although I like the idea of the palatial mansion. I think that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. This business, you're absolutely right about it. It takes everything out of you. There is no nine to five, especially if you're an owner. If you're an owner of an agency, you know, um, it, it, it takes a certain personality to, to run it and, uh, you know, a certain kind of drive. You know, if you don't have that drive, you'll never be successful because it just requires. I mean, it's incredibly rewarding, but there is a commitment. Definitely. I, uh, I, I agree with you on that. You know, you said something and it, it, um, it, it shifted a memory for me on something I had watched recently. And I'm guilty of doing this. I always talk about documentaries and stuff, but I think it's topical. So I was watching a documentary on David Berkowitz, of all people. Uh, very interesting documentary on Netflix. And uh, it, it was talking about the idea that there was more than just one person that committed these crimes. And it was compelling. Um, there was uh, Maury Terry was this investigative journalist that was trying to dig up all this information. And I thought that what was very interesting and, and how it relates to what we're about to talk about is there was all this information that was, that was uncovered and then brought to the district attorney's office in Queens. And they're like, yes, it looks like there's something here. But then the police department was like, yeah, we're not we're done. We're not looking further into this. This he confessed. This is what it is. We're moving forward. And a lot of the reasons behind that were political. There were a lot of promotions. There were a lot of people that, that, that went up the ranks and, and it would really, really cause a problem to 
investigate and open that back up and do this thing. So I, I thought it was really interesting. You had said something before with regards to unintentional um, or intentional reasons for people remaining incarcerated and things like that. And it just kind of popped into my head there that here's this like amazing thing. Like if you look at the evidence, it's like, yeah, it's pretty obvious that there were more than one person involved here, but they just didn't want to go for it. Well, I mean, look at even Philadelphia. 20, 30 years ago, there was a man named Rizzo here who a lot of people absolutely adored, but he was um, he was a hard-nosed cop mm -hmm. and he wanted convictions. And unfortunately, some of those convictions ended up being wrongful convictions. Right. He wasn't the only one across the country. You have prosecutors who had an overwhelming amount of cases and the pressure was on them to close those cases. No one wants to know that you've got 400 murders in a city and only 100 of them have been solved, right. okay? That means 300 are gone unsolved. And so the pressure on police and the pressure on prosecutors is incredible. Right. So let's get something straight from the beginning. I admire anybody who does their job. Right. A good prosecutor is a great person. A good police officer is fabulous. Unfortunately, there is so much pressure either because of social situations or political situations or pressure for hiring or going up in the ranks or from other people that sometimes the job doesn't get done right. right. Now, there are a lot of investigators who are very unhappy that my work is post-conviction because most investigators came from the ranks of the police. Sure. And I've been at a meeting where someone actually said to me, so you're telling me I locked them up and you get them off. That's the most disrespectful thing you could do. Yeah, that's terrible. That's yeah. Not true. Yeah. yeah. I don't get them off. And if you locked them up and it was righteous and you had evidence and there was no, uh, obfuscation or hiding of information or planning of information or ignoring data or evidence, then you should not be afraid of anything I do because I'm not going to find anything that's not there. It's not like that person is going to be held liable now. <laughs> you know, like, right. like, oh, we're going to come sue you because, you know, you, you, you did this if they obviously didn't do, do it anything. Right or you don't do it. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you did it wrong, then I'm your worst enemy. Yeah. Really simple, because if the evidence is there, I'm going to find it. I'm going to dig. I'm not going to look at the evidence that was used at trial. I'm going to look at the evidence that was not used at trial. Yeah. Because why would I look at what was already in, in the public eye? I want to see what the prosecutor hid. I want to see what pages are missing from the murder book. Right. I want to see what was not done who was not interviewed and who was interviewed, but didn't testify. Those are the things that I'm looking for because sometimes people purposely or because of pressure, ignore evidence that is right in front of their face. And it's really nice to close a case, but you've got two problems. If the doer is not caught, then he or she is out there doing it again. Right. And if the wrong person is incarcerated, you've just taken away a life. And it's not fair to say, well, if he didn't do this, he did something else, because that's not true. No, no, that's not the country we live in. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, definitely not a way to, to, to look at things. It's, it, it's just a fascinating line of investigative work. I mean, something I have no experience in doing. 
but you know, it, it really, um, you know, it really catches your eye. It's very, very interesting. You know, I have met so many people doing these podcasts like yourself that just have that, that desire for, for the truth, just to try and figure out exactly what happened and, and being impartial about it because maybe you do your work and maybe you find out, you know what? It's a good arrest. Like this person deserves to be here because I'm sure that's happened a few times, right? Yeah. And, and here's the thing. I always go back to, to this and, and I say it a lot and I, I've said it on other podcasts and I, I've said it in, in conversation. I've written about it. None of us wants to be judged by the lowest moment of our life. Yeah. We've all done something in our background. And I think if I asked you all in the listening audience, close your eyes for a minute and think of that thing you did between the ages of 17 and 25 right. that you hope no one ever finds out about. Yeah. Okay, now imagine somebody found out about it and you get punished for it and you go to prison for life. Okay, well, we should not all be judged by the lowest moment of our life because we go on to become responsible men and women. We learn from those mistakes in youth and things get better for the most part. We generally don't go backwards. We generally go forwards. Right. We learn from our mistakes. And most of the people that we work with in post-conviction are people who were incarcerated when they were 18, 19, 20, 21, or 22. And we don't get to them until yeah. 20 years later. Crazy. So, you know, you get a 20-year-old and now they're a 40-year-old and they've lost the most important formative times of their life when they should have been raising families and getting jobs and, and, and doing something useful for society, or maybe deciding that they wanted to move on and get out of this uh, life that they were involved in and, and become a better person. Sure. I mean, that's, it's something to think about. It really so, gives you pause. So do you like remain in contact with people that you've worked on their cases, like after the fact, uh, or you just move on to the next one? I, I generally don't. Mm -hmm. There are two gentlemen I stay in contact with, uh, mostly because they're friends. So I, I've been instrumental in getting them both out of prison for wrongful convictions. And I do keep in touch with them. They're, I, I'm not sure why. I'm really not even sure why. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that they have so much potential in this world and they're doing such good and they're speaking and they're writing and they're trying really hard to keep other people from falling into the same traps they fell sure. into. Sure. So I do, but for the most part, no, I'll, I'll check up on somebody every once in a while because I'm curious, but you know, it's, it's like the rest of the investigation. You do a job and you move on. Every sure. job is a chapter. Yeah. Every, every investigator could write a book. Yeah. chapter by chapter by chapter. There's a beginning, you get an assignment, you do the assignment, it closes very infrequently. Do you revisit it? Yeah. You move on to the next one because you've got work to do. You don't have yeah. time to live in the past. I got to say like probably 90% of the cases I work on, I never know how they resolve. And the only reason I'll find out is maybe on LinkedIn, they'll, they'll, uh, the attorney will post and say like, hey, I'm proud to announce that, you know, we've settled X amount of, uh, you know, uh, sell this case for X amount of dollars, you know, type of right. deal. But most of the time, I, I, I never know how it ends. Yeah, it's hard for new investigators to realize that. I have, um, I have someone who's working with me now, which is interesting. I just took on um, someone after probably 20 years of working primarily by myself with an occasional uh, assist. But 
his thing was, okay, what happened with that case we worked on last year? I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. I did my job. Right. And you can't follow them all or you spend your life doing useless, non-income bearing work. <laughs> right. My job is to make money. You know, that's the bottom line is that this is a business. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I love what I do. And, and if I was not making money, I would probably volunteer my time and do exactly the same thing. Right. However, the benefit is that after putting too many children through college, I can now make money that will allow me to do things for myself. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a job. It's a business. And I run it like a business. Oh, that's great. You know, we're going to dive into this topic a little bit further. We're going to step out real quick for uh, some commercials and for the sponsors and all that. Uh, so everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Are you overwhelmed with your current case load? Could you use some help with your skip trace assignments? With Merlin Locate Services, rather than adding staff, you can add an entire skip trace department of licensed private investigators who specialize in skip tracing. Check out MerlinLocate.com today. When you work with Merlin Locate Services, you bring on a valuable experience and trusted extension to your team. Want full data access without a site inspection? IRB Search gives you full social security numbers, dates of birth, up-to-date contact info, and so much more without the inconvenience or cost of an inspection. As an added bonus, you can access IRB data on any device in any location. You'll always have the best data anytime, anywhere. Visit IRBSearch.com and use exclusive promo code PIPOD2021 for a free trial and 100 credits. Offer available for new and returning customers. PI Perspectives. Check out the PI Institute of Education at piinstitute.com. Since 1989, Kelly Riddle has been teaching on subjects such as surveillance, nursing home investigations, insurance fraud, domestic investigations, hidden assets, and accident scene investigations. The PI Institute of Education is a featured learning partner in the investigatorstoolbox.com. So check out the free content on the site, then visit the Institute for more great savings on additional classes. Have you heard about this year's Osmosis Conference? It's back to a live event in San Diego, California from October 10th to the 12th. The event's available both live and virtually. Matt is going to start his quick hit segments in a few weeks on Thursdays and highlight each speaker. You can learn more at osmosiscon.com. And don't forget to check out the latest issue of PI Magazine. Bob Macquiat graces the cover, and there's a great article on how the magazine was started. So go check it out today. And welcome back to PI Perspectives. This is Matt Sperry, your host. Uh, today we are here with Kitty Haley. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you here, Kitty. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. It's really an honor to be on your show, too. I mean, I've read so much of what you've written, and the work that you do is so important to our profession. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I look at the folks that have written books, and it's so intimidating to me. And I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I've written enough material where I probably have a book, uh, but I just don't have the time to do it. Maybe one day. Who knows? Well, on that note, I, um, in 2005, I put out a book called The Professional Investigator, which is a a compilation of about 30 articles I had written from the beginning of my writing career in this industry to that time. 
And I realized that I've amassed another 35 articles. So they're going to go in a book called The Professional Investigator 2, and that'll be out next year. Awesome. So, and, yeah. it's, it, and it's just articles. It's yeah. things that I've written that I thought were necessary to write. Because if you don't educate everybody to the best way and the proper way of doing things, then people are going to go running around doing things wrong. Yeah, sure. And there are not enough courses and classes in this industry that really teach and inform the young investigator the best way to do things and to do it honestly and legally. Yeah, I, you know, you bring up a good point before we jump back into the topic here. So COVID happens and there's tons of content that comes out, right? Tons of webinars, tons of Zoom meetings and, you know, hear this person talk, be a part of this, attend this conference, which you would never go to because you just wouldn't travel in person to that particular place. All great stuff, great content. I would argue maybe even a little saturated, maybe even a little too much. However, not a lot of ethics stuff, just not, not a lot, right? And that's an important topic of what we do, especially for young folks, you know, that are just getting started and saying, okay, I've seen this on TV. You know, I have an idea of what I think an investigator does or, or what we can and can't do. But it's, it's our responsibility, folks like yourself, people that have been in the, in the industry for a bit to train these people or at least put that information out there, right? Always leave it better than when you got there, right? That's, the, that's what they say. You know, it's interesting because when I first started writing, people would say to me, why are you telling people how you do things? They're going to take your clients away. Never and happened. I always, yeah. I, well, I refer to my grandmother yeah. who made the best peach pie in the whole wide world. Okay. And she would give away her recipe. And I would say, grandma, why do you tell everybody how to make it? Then they'll make it and people will stop getting yours or they'll stop appreciating yours. And she said, no, mm -mm. I can tell them all the ingredients, but nobody does it like I do. Yeah. And that's the way I feel about it. I want to tell you how to do things yeah. because I want you to do it right. But the bottom line is I know I am like a dog with a bone. I'm not going to stop doing it until I'm done. And if that means sitting at my desk at 11 o'clock at night and reviewing evidence that I've reviewed 16 times already, right. then I'm going to do it. And I don't know a lot of other people that do that. So, I mean, that's what it's all about. Uh, it's, it's that personality. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm of the same idea, right? Like I have no fear about losing any clients over sharing how I do things or talking about things. I've built those relationships, even in New York. I, like I, there are times where I've brought in another investigator to work on a case that I'm working. And yeah, is there a chance that the guy I'm working with is going to jump ship? It's always a chance. I mean, you sign uh, non-competes and whatever, but it, it, do they really enforce that stuff? I mean, at the end of the day, if somebody wants to switch, they're going to switch, right? Um, There's plenty of clients. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of work, plenty of work for everybody. Yeah. And if you've established a good reputation, yeah. then maybe you get two days off and then another case comes in the door. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, don't, I don't know what two days off is. Yeah, I'm I don't sure know you either. Don't. Yeah, you're, you're speaking another language to me. <laughs> oh my God, the pandemic was like a pandemic of... Um, of cases. Yeah. There were so many attorneys that got to sit down and take the time to look at things and say, Oh my God, I should have this investigated. Right. And they totally forgot that we were in a pandemic yeah. and that I would have to actually leave my safe little cocoon and go out and do work for them. Yeah. It was uh, probably about two or three months for them to pick up a file. <laughs> but once they picked up a file, I agree with right. you. It was uh 
the floodgates were open and we, we were deemed essential services in New York. So, um, you know, we were always working with, you know, all the PPP and all that or PPE or whatever. Um, you know, we, we had all that stuff, um, uh, going on and doing that. So, um, okay. So let's, let's dig into this topic here. I think we've danced around enough. <laughs> so post conviction investigations, um, what is it and how do you get started doing it? Okay. Well, there's a court system in this country. It's pretty much the same state to state. Um, there are varying differences, but not much. There is um, a crime is committed. Someone is accused. There is a trial. Right. If that someone is convicted, that's not the end of it. They may receive a sentence. The sentence can be anything from parole to death, depending on the state. But they have an opportunity to appeal that conviction. It goes to the appellate court. The appellate court hears the same case, maybe with some different slant to the information this time, mm-hmm. maybe with a different witness or two, but right. basically it's an appeal of the original case. Right. So memos of law, and, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. they can lose that too. Yeah. And then we go into something called post-conviction appeal. And that's where the investigator comes in who does post-conviction work. After it's gone through the regular court process, of conviction and appeal, if there are extenuating circumstances, things that were not brought up before, um, witnesses that were not available before, then that gets brought in. Now, a case can go to the superior court of the individual state, or it can flip over to the federal court. And on the federal court, the highest court in the land is the Supreme Court of the United States. So there are two tracks. It can go from state court, from conviction to post-conviction, or it can go from, on the federal court, from um, post-conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is another level of appeal. So there are many levels of appeal. And sometimes there are appeals that will be brought in 20, 30 years later. People on death row are automatically allowed to appeal, and they can appeal as far as the Supreme Court but they have to have evidence and information. That's the job of the investigator. And the rules on the federal level differ because you can only bring in that which was not available before, that which was not known before, and that which was not presented before. So that puts a really narrow window of what we're looking for, which means you have to turn over every stone again and see if there was somebody who maybe could have testified but was out of the country, or maybe someone who we didn't know was there. And so there was no way of interviewing them because we didn't know they existed because they were hiding behind a car and never made themselves known. So I have a question. Um, Has uh, the evolution of DNA affected um, this type of investigative work? I would assume it has, but uh, how much has it affected it? It has, but not as much as television makes it look. Okay. Okay. okay, So Matt, I can see you on a zoom screen right now as we're talking. Okay. So I have a gun in my hand and I shoot you. Okay. And I wipe the gun down and I throw it in the river and I walk away. Where's the DNA? Is it on you? No. Okay. So 30 years later, I'm not going to be able to exhume your body and find DNA. Okay. There is no DNA unless I touch something. All right. So it's nice to say it's there, but it's not necessarily there. I have found it. 
I have found it in cases where there was evidence that was not used to court, that was still in boxes, that was still taped up um, on a shelf in an, um, some weird southern town in the back of uh, a storage unit, right. and, and I found it. We're not always that lucky. It's right. not always there. Right. So when it's there, it's great. But there are all of these other things. And, and the Innocence Project has been real movers and shakers mm-hmm. in getting information out there. Yeah. They've done a wonderful job. So let's, initial- let's talk. I'm sorry. Let's talk about that no, a little no, bit because no. some folks might, know, might not know what the Innocence Project is. So can you break that down for me? Sure. The Innocence Project um, was basically, it started, I believe, as a nonprofit. It was Barry Schecht and Peter Neufeld. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do this post-conviction work for people on death row who were wrongfully incarcerated. Initially, their thrust was DNA. And then they found out what I just told you, that there's not always DNA. Mm -hmm. So they started looking at other areas. And one of the things was uh, false confessions, which there are so many false confessions. And, you know, the average person would say, well, he said he did it. How can they, he admitted to it. How come you're saying that it was a false confession. Well, maybe an, an 18-year-old under pressure being told that his mother's going to be arrested if he doesn't confess to a crime, who's been held without food or water or being able to go to the bathroom for 48 hours, right. and who maybe was hit a couple of times with a phone book, mm-hmm. maybe he's going to confess because they say, if you say you did it, we'll let you go home. Right. And we all know police lie because they're allowed to. We're not allowed to lie. They are allowed to lie. And I'm not saying all police work that way, but we all know that there are cases of that. Mm -hmm. So false confession becomes another way of finding, you know, did the person do it or did he not do it? And then there are other mitigating circumstances. Maybe you find out your client is guilty, but then you have to ask the question, if he did it, why did he do it? What was the reason behind it? Why would an intelligent, sane individual take the life of a mother who was pregnant with a child? Mm -hmm. Why would that happen? And then you think, and you go, well, wait a minute. He's not a sane individual. What happened? And you have the person tested and see if they are mentally capable. You you find out if there is brain damage. You Mm -hmm. go back and you do a complete search in the family and you go back to before the child was born, one generation, and you find out was mother a crack addict? Was father an alcoholic? Was there fetal alcohol syndrome? Did he have an automobile accident that where he had a closed head injury? Did he play football Mm -hmm. and damage himself? There are so many reasons, but it makes the investigation so much more complete. If you start at the day of the crime and you go forward from that moment, you know all about the crime, what happened and what was reported about it. But if you start at the day of the crime and you go backwards, then you find out why it happened. Right. What was the mindset of that person? Right. What was the relationship between these people? Was it intentional or was it unintentional? And so there's so many parts to an investigation. It can take years to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I I feel like there's always, one person's side and another person's side, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And it's our job to figure out, you know, uh, what's the actual full truth of, uh, of what t- took place. I mean, and, and then what was presented to the jury? Yeah. What did the jury get to hear? Mm-hmm. And what was left out? Did the attorney make a bad decision by leaving out information that you find out later is vital? Yeah. 
if they did, it's ineffective assistance of counsel. Yeah. Or maybe the attorney didn't get much money because he was court appointed. I keep saying he, it could be he or she. He or she, right? <laughs> he was court appointed and he couldn't afford to hire an investigator. So he had to do his own investigation. Right. And seriously, attorneys are not investigators. No, ma'am. <laughs> Yep. They know how to take it into court, but they don't know what to take into court until we as the investigators show them. Yeah. No, it's real interesting. Um, you know, I feel like for me on my own personal journey, I before I started my business, I, I had this you know, fork in the road moment where I was either going to become an attorney or um, continue in the investigations and open my own business. Right. Those were that was my two opportunities. And I started to prepare like I was going to be an attorney. So the LSATs, the logic games, the, you know, the studying, you know, all that stuff was so foundational for me in my investigative work. I felt like it really helped me become a better investigator because I really learned how to consider alternate possibilities. Um, my reasoning changed, you know, because I used to be a very scientific person. You know, I, I would approach something and go, here's my theory. I'm going to go prove it. Right. And that's that's how I would dive in and, and do it. And you can't do that in this business. You have to consider other possibilities. You got to rule them out. Right. And it was a game changer for me. So, you know, anybody that I think is fascinated by the law or, or wants to get into this stuff, you really need to understand how an attorney thinks and that whole process, because it will change your scope of how you do your investigations. Right. Well, you, you know, that's interesting because a um, hundred years ago or so when I started in this industry, um, <laughs> I was an art teacher, all right? I, I got into it because of my husband. That's the truth of the matter. I knew I didn't know enough. So I started looking for courses and classes that I could take and there weren't any. So I eventually took a paralegal course, which gave me a really good understanding of the law. Mm -hmm. It gave me an understanding of the court system, what evidence was needed, how it needed to be presented, and what an attorney needs from you, the paralegal, to research and prepare a case. Right. And then I did the next thing, which I thought was the most brilliant thing I ever did. Every time we got a new attorney, I made an appointment. I went and I sat down with him or her, and I said, what is it that you want from me? How do you want your reports presented? In what form can you give me an example of one? Right. And so I learned from my attorneys what would satisfy them. What I actually found out was some attorneys want everything in detail with uh, subcaptions and uh, very pithy, descriptive adjectives. And others just want the facts yeah. and nothing more and nothing shading it. Right. So if you know your attorney and you know what they want, you could be a better investigator because you are feeding them what they need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit more about this post-conviction stuff. So um, are, you, are you typically getting hired by an attorney or is it the court system that hires you? Do you have to be a part of a panel? Like, how does that work? Okay, well, um, in all honesty, the courts don't pay you very well, and I mm. like to be paid very well. Yeah. So <laughs> I work through an attorney. That gives me two things. It guarantees my fee. Mm. And the money goes through the attorney so that I'm being paid by the attorney and the attorney and I have a contract. It also protects as much as can be protected the work product privilege, sure. which, by the way, is never protected. Right. But as much as it can be protected, it goes through the attorney and at least they can forestall the court requesting my documents. Sure. Okay. Sure. But um, 
yeah, I, I want to, I want to be paid for my time. I want the attorney to give me legal advice. I am not an attorney. I may have been in this business a long time mm. and I pretty much know the law and I might be able to second guess them, but I don't want to. They need to tell me what they want, what they need and how they want it. Mm -hmm. The problem with going through clients directly is that all clients believe they are innocent or believe they can scam the system. Right. All clients hire you because they have a vision of getting out of prison. And that vision is either based on reality or the reality they have created for themselves over the years of being incarcerated. Yeah. And they forget the actual facts and live with their own version of the facts. I can see that happening. So, yep. Definitely. So I don't, I don't want to deal with them directly. I yeah. want to talk to them. Right. I want to know what their theories are. And then I want to read what really happened and read the interviews the police did mm -hmm. and read the interviews that the previous investigators did and read all the trials. I mean, I keep saying read. I can read three or four bankers boxes full of information before I take one step out the door to do something. Wow. Yeah. And then after I've read it, I digest it myself. I make my own cast of characters, my own list of people so that I understand who everybody is. And when I come across a name, I can flip through my 12 pages instead of flipping through 385,000 pages and figure out why is this person here? Why did I know their name? Were they important? Did they show up seven, eight, 10, 12 times mm. or were they never mentioned again? Right. And that, by the way, includes everyone, including the, um, emergency crew people who arrived at the scene who picked up the body and put it in the cab. Okay. And, and I may never hear of their names again, but I may want to go interview them because they saw something at the scene at that moment that no one else saw. Yeah. So it's, it's really a tedious process and you have to like to read and you have to be analytical. Sure. And if you don't, you should do surveillance. <laughs> There's something else for you. <laughs> right. Right. Everybody can't do it. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I, I read two to 400 pages of, of transcripts a week. Wow. And I also read a book because I need to get my head away from doing that so that there's a balance in my brain. But um, yeah, if you don't know what happened and then interview your client and then talk to your attorney about his or her theory of the case, you really can't do your work. So yeah. there's a lot of prep. It takes a lot of time. These are, these are cases that really take on an average two years. Wow. That's a, that's a big commitment. Yeah. Right. And nothing that you do is going to go to court anytime soon. So whatever you're doing today isn't going to go to court for five years. So, so I'm going to be the gray-haired old lady sitting on the stand <laughs> talking about the case I did three years ago. So, okay? so I'm sure you get solicited for, um, for additional work while you're you know, working on a case. So what do you do when that happens, when somebody wants to hire you, but you're, you're knee-deep in, in a particular case? Yeah, well, you're right. Sometimes it's overwhelming, so I have to balance it. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, there are some really good investigators in the Philadelphia area, and there are one or two of them 
that um, we will handle cases, hand cases back and forth to each other. Right. If I can't do something, I'm going to recommend Diane Cowan or Jeff Stein. Yeah. Um, there great are people. good people out there. Yeah, yeah great, they're great wonderful. Yeah. They, there are not a lot of people that do what I do, yeah. but those that do it, do it well and have good reputations. And so, yeah, yeah um, if I'm overwhelmed, I will see if someone else can handle it. Mm. Otherwise, I will honestly say to an attorney, I can handle your case, but I'm busy through the rest of the summer. If you can give me the documents now, I can start on it in September. Right. And in most cases, because they take forever. I mean, don't forget, there's someone who's been sitting in prison for 22 years. Right. Another six months isn't going to make that much difference in the scheme of things. It's not the evidence isn't hot. This is so different than television. Right. We don't get to see a crime the minute it happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't get to see the blood still on the floor. Right. All right. It's been cleaned up, sanitized. The building's been torn down. Something else has been erected in its place. And we can only imagine. So we have to work on old evidence and old information. And thank God for Google Earth, which gives you... Um, a timeline yeah. and you can go back in time. Yeah, but it's awesome. It's 2009, yeah. you're yeah. screwed, yeah. right? No, I, I'm right there with you. It's a great tool. If you're an investigator and you feel like a passion to get involved with this type of work and do this type of stuff, how would you recommend that person begin? Okay, good question. Every state and most colleges now have many innocence projects. And they're a great learning place. You can volunteer to work with them. They will probably hand you a file and ask you to read it and do the outlining, mm -hmm. which is okay because it gives you the beginning of how to do something. Sure. Um, there are, of course, classes and courses, but they're very inadequate. They really do not teach you how to do this. I would suggest you volunteer to um, intern with a mentor, sure. which is how I got the person who is now working with me. Okay. He actually came to me and said, this is what I want to do. I researched it. You do this in my area. Can we talk? Okay. And, the assertive, um, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and I have college students who call me on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call someone. Send an email. See if they're interested in, in um, having someone work with them or volunteer your time to work with a local innocence project. Check your local colleges. Every single state has a university that has a project working on post-conviction, which is horrible when you think of the number of, of wrongfully incarcerated persons. I mean, the number is outrageous. Over 200 people have been exonerated wow. because they were wrongfully convicted. And that's just the tip of the needle. I've worked on 11 cases where people were either walked off of death row or walked out of prison Amazing. because of the work that I did. Amazing. And I'm one person in one city in one state. That's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. So there's not a lack of work. There's a lack of investigators and anybody yeah. who's really interested in it. Oh my God, they should do this. Yeah. Um, there are, Defender offices. Mm -hmm. I worked with the Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit in Philadelphia, which was the best training ground in the world because there are some of the most passionate, gifted attorneys and investigators working there. Mm -hmm. So um, see if you can get an internship at a place like that. See if you can get a job at a place like that. They'll train sure. you on the job. Sure. You know, 
there are so many locations where you can really get involved and do hands-on and learn why you're doing. And if you've got a mentor who will walk you through the process or who you can check with, it's even better. It's yeah. a great, great business. So what would you say are some of the mistakes that some investigators make that do this type of work? What are things to avoid? Don't think it's something you're going to see the end of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Don't think you can rush out and take a statement because the client said you've got to interview so-and-so without reading why you have to interview so-and-so. Right. Um, it Too frequently, people think that they can shortcut it. You know, they read the digest of the case. So you're reading six pages instead of 6,000 pages. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and you think you know what happened based on that information, or they read a summary of the uh, the trial, or they read the order that was passed by the judge. Sure. And it's not enough information. And if you go out and interview someone before you know everything, then you get an incomplete statement, and it looks bad if you have to keep going back to that same well. Oh, I'm sure you you anger the person that you're talking to. Right. <laughs> no doubt. It doesn't look good yeah. to the court. Yeah. This is the third statement you've taken. Well, right. why didn't you do it right the first right. time? You're, you're right. Slapping. Well, I didn't know such and such or so-and-so. Right. So I generally have three or four conversations with a witness before I put anything in writing. Mm-hmm. First of all, I have to sell myself. They have to like me. They have to want to talk to me. Why would anybody want to talk to an investigator? I mean, really, I'm digging up an old case that they've put behind them. They've stopped thinking about it. They're not interested anymore. They testified so long ago. It was so unnecessary. And then here I come and I dig up old stuff. So if they don't like me, they're not going to talk to me. And they're not going to tell me everything the first time. They have to trust me. And they're only going to trust me if I'm willing to go back and keep talking and be nice about it and be pleasant. And I'm not a cop. I can't demand anything of anyone. I can only tell you that I think that there's something wrong here. And you might be the key that helps me to unlock what it is. And if I don't show empathy and I don't feel empathy, then I can't get anything out of anyone. So I have to passionately care about what I do. Well, that's a great point right there. So that empathy that, um, you know, the kids gloves approach on it, it's a real skill set. You can't come in with guns blazing, demanding, you know, you need to do this. You have to do this. This person has been in jail, you know, unfairly for the last 20 years. Like you, you have to do this. I, I, you can't approach folks that way. I had uh, not a criminal case, but I had a case I worked on that was about seven or eight years old. And uh, it was a, uh, someone had gotten run over by a dump truck. And I had this key high witness who actually saw everything that happened. Well, the attorney, before he hired me, uh, decided he wanted to take a statement from this guy. And he did. He took a statement, but it was never notarized. And, you know, the attorney really shouldn't be taking a statement from a witness, right? So here it is seven, eight years later, I got to go talk to this guy and I got to convince him to give another statement and notarize it. And he's like, Hey, I did this already. Right. And it was not an easy process. It probably took about four, four or five visits to the guy. Cause he was really like adamant about, I don't want to be involved with this. And, uh, I just approached it like a, a very, 
uh, cool, calm collective. Uh, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, I was able to get it done. And it, 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 that was, that made the case. It was, you know, right done then and there. As soon as they had that notarized statement, you know, motion for summary judgment, we're good. Keep it moving, right? Um, so, yeah, that, stuff like that happens. And, and that's that's great insight, Kitty, because, you know, <clears throat> there are, you know, as a good investigator, you got to read the room. You got to understand who you're talking to and what's going to get the job done. And uh, you may not know that till you're, you're, having, you're in the middle of that conversation, right? Right. And sometimes you're the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to understand that everybody has their preferences. And sure. I don't mean prejudice. I mean preference. Yeah. Yeah. That they would rather talk to a man or a woman. That they would rather talk to somebody who is um, of their same color or their same ethnicity. Yeah. And so being sensitive to that is really important. Sure. Um, it's, you, and you've got to be willing to say, my ego is not that big that I have to be the one that sure. does that. You yeah. gotta be able to go back and regroup and say, maybe you had better go out on this assignment than right. me because you might make that person happier. You might satisfy their personal needs more. Because sure. in the long run, it's not about me. None of this is about me. It's yeah. about yeah. doing what's best for the client. And yeah. if you lose track of that and your ego gets in the way, then you're gonna step over your own feet and you're not gonna get anything done so, you know, you can be wrong. You you can be wrong. And oh, yeah. if you admit it, well, hey, the world didn't end, and you move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> we're not perfect. And that's the... No, you not, know, that, not at, by a long shot. <laughs> at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. So, okay, so we're going to wind down here. Uh, Kitty, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, what, what a pleasure just, uh, you know, talking about this line of work. And for me, learning about it, because I really, you know, like I said earlier, I don't know much about it. If folks wanted to get more content from you, you have books, how do they get a hold of you? I'm sure Googling <laughs> will get you there, but uh, yeah, give, give me some plugs here. Name. I have a website. Yeah, go and ahead. And it's my name. Yeah. It's www.kittyhaley.com. Haley is H-A-I-L-E-Y. Mm -hmm. uh, my phone number is on there. My uh, contact information is on there. Mm -hmm. Send me an email. I talk to everybody, which is really... <laughs> A waste of time sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I learn something from everybody I talk to. Sure. It, and I don't mean a waste of time. It yeah. takes a lot of time. Yeah. But, you know, if if I, at this stage of the game, if I can't share information and and knowledge, then what kind of a person am I? Yeah. I mean, I've got to prepare yeah. the next generation of investigators to do a better job than I do. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I always say that, uh, you know, let our ceilings be their floors, right? Let them, uh, right. them get higher and, okay. and, and above. I've got a ton of books out there. So, you know, if you want to buy a book, buy a book. It would be great. <laughs> and if you don't, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Yeah. I'll give you yeah. free. Just call me up and we'll have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. Please go check out Kitty's uh, website. And, uh, you know, if you have questions, reach out to her. Kitty, just thank you for everything that you do. Really, this is uh, oh, amazing. This and uh, I think you're, you're a national treasure to our industry. So I didn't get to talk about ethics. I'm so happy. <laughs> we, we could do a whole other segment, I mean, if you want. But uh, I'm going to give you a pass on this. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll catch everybody next week on the next show. Wow. Kitty's such an amazing resource. She's done so much for this industry. 
We thank you, Kitty, for all you do. It takes a special type of investigator to do post-conviction investigations. So make sure you look up the Innocence Project as well. We thank Crosstracks, Merlin Locate, IRB, Osmosis, and PI Institute of Education for sponsoring the show. So please, if you will, click on their links in the description and support these great sponsors. And do yourself a favor and make sure to check out investigatorstoolbox.com. You can join through the app available on iOS and Android platforms. You'll be able to access the whole site right from your smartphone. And there's no better time than today to sign up for the site because for 49 cents a day, you can take advantage of some great networking, training, and data resource management. And if you use code PIP201836, you'll save an extra $20. And if you have a question or a comment about the show, email Matt at MatthewS at SatellitePI.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. He'd like your feedback to bring you the best shows possible. And we'll be back on Monday with a new show, so make sure you tune in and stay safe out there.